Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so welcome to another edition of the Readerly Report. Today, Gail and I are going to be talking about um, works of art by works of art. We're going to be talking about books about people who have been affected, I guess, by the African diaspora, um, Black History Month. In you know, in doing a little bit of research with this, I found out that Black History Month is celebrated in other countries, which I wasn't aware. And I think commonly in the United States is now referred to as African American History Month. So those are the books that we're going to be discussing today, some of the best ones we've read. And I have... I have a particular set of books I want to share because I want to share things, books that are focused more in regular American life, because I think like World War II books, there there's a lot of books that get a lot of acclaim about a particular Black or African experience, um, which I feel like is is either slavery or, you know, the social justice issues. But I really would like to delve into and recommend great books that are about people living their lives and and their great stories and the characters are black or African. So, and we'll talk a little bit about that because it's really interesting. I think Colson Whitehead is an interesting example of an author who has written broadly, but the books that have really resonated with audiences have been the books where he's written about slavery. And I think that's really interesting. So, that's just to set it up. I guess Gail and I will talk about a couple of news topics of the day, which I'm increasingly fond of literary, uh, the latest literary <laughs> news. Scandals. Well, no, I have some things that aren't scandalous today, but you know, if, if okay. we discuss a little scandal, that's okay as well. And of course, you know, we'll talk about what we're reading and all that good stuff. So what do you have in literary news? Well, I've I've been meaning to mention this for a while. I make all of these little notes to myself, and then I remember approximately half of them, two or three of them. So January 1st, 2019, a whole bunch of books came into the public domain. So now people will have access to classics. I think anything that was published 1923 and before has entered into the public domain. So, you know, you... This means that when you go to Google Books or something and you know how you can preview and read certain pieces, that means that those particular books, their full text is now going to be available. It also means that people can write how we love retellings. They can they can approach these stories and do retellings without having to get permission. And it's really exciting mm. because I think legislation went into effect in 19... 19- 98 or 99 that extended the copyright like anything that was going to be entering the public domain back then they they amended it and gave an extension so people had to wait another 21 years so I know Gail and I said that at some point during this year we're going to do our classics you know we're going to read classics so that means that we have more choices of what what is available to people to read as a classic that is free of charge or I'm sure people, you know, will, we just have much more richness, I guess, in what we can expect coming right. up. 
And so there's some Agatha right. Christie, there's some Dorothy Sayers. Um, I think one of the articles that I was reading about this was talking about how there are not a lot of American writers entering because of the way we structure our copyright, but I think there's like a lot of classic British authors. But I think that that's something that we should take a look at, you know, when we're talking about our challenge and to see what we can, what we might want to read from these new books that are available. Uh, for sure. I'm excited about that. Yeah. You're right. Not scandalous at all. <laughs> Unless you're an intellectual property lawyer who follows this Right. Stuff. Actually, there's a web, there's a website <laughs> dis, um, that's dedicated to the public domain and what's coming out when. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of different sites are doing roundups of, of what's coming out that is of interest. Like Duke has a post, Duke Law School has a post about it. There's mm. a crime fiction blog that has a post about what's relevant to them. So that's something that I'm interested in delving into these different lists and seeing what is available to me. And copyright doesn't just mean books. It you know, there's also films that are now in the public domain and music. So lots yep. of good stuff to think about. For a brief moment of my life, I was actually an intellectual property lawyer. And I remember um, studying all this stuff in law school. It does have implications even just beyond whether the book, you know, has implications beyond who can profit off the book, but it has implications, like you said, for parody, for uh, retellings, updates, modernizations. So it's all, it's all interesting. So a sample of some are Jacob's Room by Virginia Woolf has entered the public domain love and other stories by Anton Chekhov the murder on the links by Agatha Christie the case for spirit photography by Arthur Conan Doyle um, a new PJ Woodhouse the inimitable Jeeves I've never read him have you read any works by him I have not the prophet no. by Khalil Gibran you know um mm. some Catherine Mansfield short stories there's a new Edith Wharton that is there. So interesting stuff. So for people who want to use the profit for their wedding vows or readings in their weddings, they can do it without fear that they are borrowing too much of his work. Is that a real concern that people have at weddings? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But I do think that many weddings, including possibly my own, used the profit in their ceremony. Oh, did you? I'm not. Do you I, feel I like you used possible. too much? No, I, I'm not worried. <laughs> I can't even remember, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's a big, it's a big issue. All a blur. Yeah. Okay. Did you have any news? Did I have any news? Well, I will. Have I talked about the, um, I guess I have talked about it. The um, uh, author event that I'm moderating in March. So if you're listening to this show and you live in the DC area and you have any interest in hearing from two um, two contemporary authors who write a lot of historical fiction. Um, I'm going to be moderating a discussion with them on March 14th at Kramer Books, which is in DuPont Circle. So um, if you're interested, add it to your calendar. We'd love to um, have people come out for it. Um, so that's my big news. Um, the other big news is that I did this swap. It's <laughs> like Spivey swap Galentine's Day. Oh, you did that. And 
I did it and I'm really irritated because I haven't gotten mine yet. Oh. Like I sent mine. What did you send? I haven't gotten mine. Did it have? Well, they make, you make a wish list. Okay. You make a wish list. So, so it didn't have to be romance themed or friendship themed or anything like it that. It didn't have to be romance themed, but you were supposed to um, augment the book with something Valentine's-y. Like a, a candy or a bookmark or something, fuzzy sock, something that felt sort of Valentine's-y, but platonic. <laughs> so my the person I was assigned had only requested one book, which was Becoming. And <laughs> because there's like a $20 limit and or maybe it was $25 and that book is basically $20. So um, I just bought like a pack of chocolate hearts and sent it off and I you know, put those two together and sent them off. But if you follow the Spivey Swap on, or I guess Spivey Book Club on Facebook, people are posting all kinds of pictures of like all this stuff they're getting. And some people go, you know, really went like took it really seriously and they sent like all the mugs and homemade stuff. And I mean, I didn't do that, but I'm just bummed because I haven't gotten anything yet. Maybe it'll be in the mail when you get home today. Maybe, maybe I, yeah, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, I feel like really petty being like, and mine hasn't come yet, <laughs> but, um, but that is on my mind because I'm, I'm excited about it. Oh, when I requested, so I put on my wish list some, um, lighter fare. So I think I put, um, uh, some stuff you and I, I put on marriageable on there and I put some other books that I feel like we've talked about. Maybe the new Sally Thorne. And then there was another one. Otherwise engaged. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I put those yet? on there. Otherwise engaged. I hope so. Cause I put it in the wish list. If I didn't, I'm going to look really stupid, but anyway, we'll see what happens. I'm just, it's just kind of makes, you know, checking the mail fun, which these days with the exception of books, there's usually not much fun mail that comes. No shoes. Not recently. Oh, no, I did order new running shoes. Does that count? <laughs> sure. I mean, they're not that exciting, but hopefully those are on their way too. So I hope everyone's too been following up on the scandal that just keeps giving with AJ Finn and the, and, um, the, you know, the author of the woman in the window a.k.a. Dan Mallory, there's just a spate of articles about men failing up and, you know, going along their merry way. Um, There's articles about that. And there's also, there was also just a whole bunch of the Marie Kondo articles and talking about how she Mm -hmm. has been perceived and vilified and is there a racial element to that you know like so many people seem to be so upset with her for what are basically common sense tips that we've heard from other people but it seems like there is an added component of you know particular vitriol when it comes to her which I think is unfortunate yeah if you don't agree with her then don't follow her recommendations like why is that so hard Yeah, I, I mean as many Books that come out about decluttering and reorganizing your life and this is how you should do this or that. You know, I just have not seen such a concerted number of, what do I want to say, rebuttals or response to this. You know, like I can't even name other people who have written books like this where they've been in the news so much, but everyone just has a specific problem. I mean, if you don't, like what she's doing don't watch her show and don't read her book and don't throw your stuff out (laughs) if on the other hand you know you 
look at what she's doing and you feel like, wow, I would like to do that in my life and I would benefit from a less cluttered existence, then do it. But like, why are people so up in arms? And if, you know, if she says to get rid of your books and you don't want to get rid of your books, then don't get rid of your books. Yeah. She's not going to show up to your house and make sure that you get rid of your books. She's, you know, they're not going to like magically disappear from your shelves because you read her advice. Like I read tons of (laughs) self-help books and certain things I'm able to implement and certain things. I'm just like, that doesn't work for me. I think that there is something to say about our current culture where it does not seem like you can have an opinion without it. Like, if I say yeah. I do this and Gail, you think you do it, you do it a different way. And we, and we have different approaches to how we handle books. Like you like to keep books and I don't keep as many or you mm-hmm. don't, you know, you don't like to do DNFs and I do lots of DNFs, but I don't mm-hmm. take what you do as a personal affront, you know, and I feel right. like when people express opinions, if I express an opinion and it's different than your opinion, it's not like, okay, that's how she lives her life. And that's completely fine. It's you don't live your life like this. And you're saying something about the way I live my life. I blame social media. Because people wouldn't know about everyone else's passionate opinions if it weren't for social media. And like, they wouldn't then have this immediate knee jerk reaction to them. But, you know, I don't understand why I don't feel it it just feels like to me. And I think to you see that with the current president that my belief is not just my belief and how I live my life. It's an attack on you. And you either I have to be convinced to come to your side or whatever. I mean, I read lots of things like I read lots of things and. I don't, you know, it's just, I don't know, maybe I just don't have the energy for that kind of thing. It's like, oh, I don't agree. And you move on. It's not a big deal. Like, I don't feel attacked. And I don't feel the need to be like, Gail, you need to start DNFing your books. Like, you know, it's just. Right. That's what makes life interesting and gives us fodder for discussion on the podcast. And also nothing that you're doing is hurting me. No, <laughs> I don't care how many Ex- books you have or can't give away. You ask me Except for it when I send you photos of them and require you to look mm-hmm. through right. and sort them for what me can and I keep? tell me what to get rid of. Yes. But I think you enjoy doing that. And I enjoy asking you Yeah, and appreciate your advice. <sighs> I don't know. All right. Yeah. So let's right. take this moment. Any updates on reading though before we. Yeah. I was going to say, let's take this in. moment to segue to what we have been reading. Ah, Sorry to do there. Um, well, my update is short. I am still listening to Becoming. We are now at election night 2008. Very exciting. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny. I feel like this tension, even though I know how that story ends. I know who wins. Isn't it the best <laughs> writing? I feel like that's yes. the best thing that happens in books when yes. you're reading stuff and you, you know, if it's historical and you know how the story has ended, that suspense that the storytelling can be so good that the suspense is still there even though you know what happened like the entire presidency is already over like you know it yes yes but it's still exciting I agree but it's exciting and because I'm hearing it through her point of view and I'm she's so good at conveying the stress she felt on election day so then it you know I I feel it too so uh I, I think I'm around 60% done with the book at this point. And I'm just still enjoying it so much. So that's 
my audio. And then I just started one of the books that I'm going to be interviewing the author of. So the book is called The Wartime Sisters by Linda Cohen Loigman, who also wrote The Two-Story House. And again, this is historic historical fiction set in World War II. And um, this the action moves from Brooklyn to Massachusetts and it's two sisters, two Jewish sisters. And I'm only maybe 30 pages in, but I really like it so far. Oh, that's good. So yeah. So that is what's going on on my end. You're really brave to just moderate this and have to read these two books. I mean, cause it's not like there are books that you have read and you're like, yes, True. I love these books well, and I want to moderate this panel. I appreciate you saying that. They're I think unknowns, it was less of right? a risk. Well, less of a risk because I'd read her first book. So um, I knew but enough to know that I probably Greer liked the second right? one. True. And I'm not sure I knew Greer McAllister was part of the package when I agreed. <laughs> but I'm uh, excited about it and I'm looking forward to reading her book. But I, I appreciate your – yeah, I appreciate that you are, are noting my bravery. <laughs> Yes. How about you? Anything new? Okay. So I am reading the, a book that we talked about, the time travel novel by Mike Chen called Here and Now and When. No, Here and Now and Then. Which, which you mentioned to me two weeks ago. Which I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago and that it was time travel and one of the locales was 2142 and the other one is 1996 San Francisco. Maybe mm-hmm. 2014 because then... I think he gets stranded in 1996, but the story starts probably in 2014 when um, we see that he has, you know, he has built a life and he has a family. And I'm about, I've read about 40 pages. I just read for like uh, 45 minutes, half an hour this morning. Um, So yeah, I've read about 50 pages and... I really like it. I think it's going to be good because it is it is mixing sort of like the dynamics of time travel. And he is an agent who is specifically sent back to like either persuade people to do things differently when the neg- when the legis- like if legislation is going to be enacted that negatively affects the future. They have these, you know, these probably maybe it's like 2142 CIA who travel back to make specific changes, but they have all these rules about how far they can interact with the society, which of course, being that he has been stranded, he has broken. So when they finally find him, I'm not really spoiling anything because the whole premise of of this book is about how he is rescued too late. Um, I think it's only been two weeks in 2142, but by the time they show up to rescue him, he has been there for 18 years and he has a life and you see that he's broken a whole bunch of protocol, which is going to endanger his family back then. So, so far I can't tell Gail if there is going to be a lot about it that makes it specifically like um, mm. if the location of San Francisco really makes a difference Um, In the first 50 pages, you know, it has not. Basically, it's you're introduced to his family and his wife and his daughter. And you're getting to know, like, some of the side effects of him being stranded and time travel. So I don't know that greater, you know, that San Francisco is going to be, like, a thing in the story, like a real locale. Or is it just like, yes, this is where he's living. I'm curious to see if it is. But so far, it's good. Okay. So. Nice. All right. 
All right. So topic of the day. Topic of the day. Just pulling the spreadsheet up again. Computer keeps going to sleep. We're too chatty. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we want to talk about today, as Nicole mentioned at the top of the show, books that contribute in some way or another to, I think, a greater understanding of African-American experience in the United States. So some of the books we've picked, I think, are nonfiction and take that topic head on, whereas other ones put it either in a historic perspective or possibly a fantastical perspective, like uh, imagining things a world differently than the one we live in. And some are just a lot more personal. Um, But each of them we have picked because for us individually, we felt like it, for me anyway, led to a greater understanding. Does that sound like a fair way to describe it? That sounds like a good way. Um, So why don't you start us off? I'm throwing you into the fire. What's Okay. Uh, well, what area do you first... want to broach? Because depending on what yeah. you say, then maybe I'll give you a book that's also similar. Like, do you want to start with nonfiction? Well, I mean, I guess, yeah, I am going to start with nonfiction. And for me, there's two nonfiction on the list. Um, one is Becoming, which I'm in the middle of right now. And one of which is Real American. Uh, ironically, both written by African-American women who went to Harvard Law School um, and were lawyers for some period of time and who have now kind of found themselves in other roles in their lives. Uh, I have found both of them incredibly compelling and really um, very personal and have, it's, it's funny to me as a white woman, how much I feel like I have relate to both of the women in the, who, both of those two authors. And um, I have appreciated their perspective and teaching me about like, maybe things I take for granted or assumptions I make. Um, and then just kind of that ever present and always useful reminder that we all face the same things and that deep down we are all very similar. And, you know, that as a result, I guess, racism and all of its various institutional manifestations, you know, about why racism is so wrong. And so, just fundamentally unfair. Well, that is definitely why I wanted to talk about a particular set of books because there are there are a lot of stories that we can read or whatever and I wanted to concentrate on things where I guess the African American experience is not other, you know, like especially I think for an audience that probably listens to us and and how we've grown up in terms of being middle class or, you know, in my case, growing up in a big city where things can be a little bit different. You know, like I said, with Colson Whitehead, it's really interesting about his books and I won't get too much into it because we're going to save him for fiction. But, you know, he's written a plethora of books. You know, he writes about Sag Harbor. In fact, is Sag, no, Sag Harbor is not a memoir, but it's like a loose retelling, I think, of how he grew mm-hmm. up you know um correct i think it is in this tony part of very autobiographical right yes yeah and sort of summers right his his summers in in sag harbor which is you know i guess 
part part of the Hamptons, loosely adjacent to the Hamptons, you'd say. I mean, his experience, we're talking about 20 or 30 years back when he was growing up as a teenager. But just those experiences that, you know, where you see African-Americans in everyday situations like life where it's there's not gang violence or it's not about slavery. But, it, you know, there have been a couple of articles and I've noticed it myself is that his books, he has these books about different experiences. He's written about a zombie apocalypse, but he got the most acclaim for the Underground Railroad, which was a reimagining of slavery. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about becoming and real American yes. and how much you identify. And I love finding stories about that. I mean, all stories are valid, but I do think that they're I'd like to see more concentration on just, you know, people in life living their lives with other kinds of stressors besides racism and, Mm -hmm. and not that it doesn't play a part in your life and you deal with it, but you know, um, the violent, I guess the more violent portrayals, which is why I put silver sparrow on my list and, you know, American marriage we've talked about a lot, but, Mm-hmm. Well, tell me why you put Silver Sparrow on. Well, I put Silver Sparrow on the list because it is, it's just, it's a family story. And it's, you know, no one, it, it's, it's about these two families who are dealing with something that I suspect that maybe a lot more families, a lot of families deal with. It's not like a black issue, but it is about this family who discovers that they are, involved with a bigamist um this is not i was gonna say i don't think a lot of families deal with that not a lot of families but i think that you do have enough stories we do have enough stories where it's just like your husband dies and you find out that he has a different family yeah he has a secret life whether he has another i mean i don't think it's to the extreme that both are married but it could be you know a relationship that has yielded a child i don't think that that's rare And I don't think it's rare for it to be a secret. But anyway, he has been living a double life. And is he, you read this. So, and I read this a long time ago. I'm not quite sure if, if he has. I think he may have read it for, um, every day I read the book book club. I read it for a book club on your blog. Yeah. It's been a long time. So, but it's your question. It's just about these two families who discover, you know, their daughters know each other and just dealing with this new information about what they thought and about who their father was and how one was treated very differently, you know, because one was sort of like more, more of an official family mm-hmm. and just how they deal with this news. Right. What was I going to ask you? Oh yeah. I wasn't, no, I you didn't were remember, about him. Yeah. I didn't remember if he had died when they found out or if he was still alive. And then one of the That's mothers actually did know one was yes. very aware. So one family was one, yes. very aware the that one, they were the second family. And then. Yes. I think he did die. But I, uh, I'm not, I would not put money on that, but I think he did. Such a good book. Sarah talks about this book when she was on. It is a good book. So we did discuss it briefly. Mm-hmm. Was that her first um, no, she went back and read that after American Marriage, and she said she felt like it was just as good. 
She wrote it after American Oh, no. It I thought she meant – When did Sarah read it? No. No, 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 no. no. Was that Tyari Jones' first book? It wasn't her first book. It, I think it's like her third book. Oh, interesting. She has another one that's like loosely based on the Atlanta child murders, which I haven't read, like growing up in Atlanta in the 80s during that time period, which I want to read. Uh, and I think she has another – one other book. Yeah, I think – I think that's – all of her books must be set in Atlanta then. Yeah, she's big on Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I mean, this one, well, yeah, it was partially set in Atlanta. All right. So going back to nonfiction, I just read this book called Black is the Body by Emily Bernard. Um, and I don't know. The subtitle on it is like telling my story, my grandmother's story, and my mother's stories. It was really interesting because she starts off like one of – it's it, – I don't think you have to call it short st- essays because, or maybe they are, but I feel like it follows a cohesive line. You know, it goes, it's in chronological order, but she starts off talking about, I think she went to either Yale or Princeton. Which one is in New Haven? Yale? Yeah. So she was a graduate student in Yale and she was stabbed by a white man. And I think he stabbed like six other people. So it's all, she talks about, you know, what that experience was like for her and just how, even though she didn't think that that stabbing was necessarily racial, there was a mental illness component going on with this man, just how she saw it as a metaphor for other things in her life and how she experienced race growing up in the South and then spending most of her adult life in the... Northeast. I believe she lives in Vermont, you know, with a white husband and they've adopted two Ethiopian children. So it's just all about how she balances all of these different areas of her life, you know, what it's like being married to a white man and how she talks to her students about race as an English professor and just her own ambiguous thoughts about, you know, the conversations that she has with people and sort of what she wants to say and what conclusions she might want to draw as opposed to the conclusions that she does. So it's a lot about identity and balancing identity. She talks a lot about her Southern family. So for in a lot of ways, I could relate to this book, you know, having grown up in New York and, you know, having a Southern family and just sort of being between different cultures a lot. It was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I like that book. Uh, I'm trying to see if I have anything else that's nonfiction before we just go for it and jump into fiction. Okay, so there's this book called Never Look an American in an Eye. It's by Oki and Debe. And he, I believe he comes to the United States from Nigeria in the 90s. And it's just all about how he experiences American culture and how it contrasts. And I always love compare and contrast, you know, how other cultures experience the United States and what they think of our rules and regulations and how we do things. Because, you know, as you're living your life, you just never think about that there are other people in other countries that have different values and have completely different experiences. And even within the United States, there's so many things that are so different. Mm -hmm. So I, I always love those sort of like fish out of water, navigating a new culture to give me more insight into, you know, a country that I'm basically blind to because I've always been here. Right. Right. So what do you have next? 
So the other book, the, the book I wanted to talk about was uh, Underground Airlines by Ben Winters, which is a imagined look at if the United States, the Civil War didn't happen and slavery, at least in the South, was not abolished. And it's about a guy who basically uh, is a slave, but in exchange for his freedom, he agrees to become a bounty hunter for other slaves. So he's going to go out and find people who have escaped. And um, I think we talked about this book on the show recently. What I didn't like about it, it was very violent and I'm not, and it got to be almost a little bit too actiony thrillery for me. But what I thought was really interesting was just how he imagined this world that, you know, with, it could have been us, <laughs> uh, if were it not for obviously some very important political and military things that happened, but this could have been us. And, um, it was chilling, just beyond chilling and, and sort of shameful to imagine that this is, this is such a sort of, um, like a realistic portrayal of how things could have gone. So I liked that one a lot. It made me think it, it was very creative. You and I have talked about this. We like when people kind of take history and then twist it. Was the main character black in this? Cause that was part of the, the sort of irony that he was a bounty hunter, but the author was white. Yes. Is white. Yes. The author is white, isn't he? It's funny. I didn't oh, really? know that. Yeah. No, the character, main character was black. And the audio narrator was black. Um, yeah. So, and similar to that is Colson Whitehead's story, The Underground Railroad, which I really enjoyed. And I, you know, it was an excellent novel, sort of like a reimagining of The Underground Ra- Railroad, if it were not metaphor and were literal. So it is about this escaped slave, Cora, who manages to find the underground railroad Mm -hmm. but it it while the railroad is physical the experiences that she has as she travels along the railroad are sort of allegory you know and i would think i think that they are allegorical for things that african-american history some of the things that african-americans have experienced since since slavery was abolished. Like there is a section where she goes to this town that's sort of perfect. She's able to get a job, but she realizes that they are sterilizing the inhabitants of this town. So she makes a decision decision to move on. And like each of the places that she goes has its own different kind of modern problem. I think that, you know, things that have been hot button issues in, in black culture in the United States. I did not read that one. So did you like Sag Harbor? Or- I read Sag Harbor, but I did not read Underground Railroad. I did like Sag Harbor. Yeah, I did. It's funny because I found, I read Sag Harbor and then I read about Underground Railroad and they seemed right. like such different, they had such different uh, uh, tenors to them. Sack Harbor was pretty light as a read. Right. It was kind of more almost coming of age more than it was like a political statement. I don't know. Did he have, did he have something in between those two? Ready. It was, it was like zone one or it was the zombie 
a co- oh, yeah, apocalypse yeah. novel. Yes, didn't read that one. Right, right. So I guess the only one I have read by him was Sag Harbor. I know you and I had our books signed by him at Book Expo for Underground. Did you keep that? Railroad. Still in your yeah, library? Yeah, I have it. Yeah, it's still there. His breakout novel, of course, is the one around slavery. I don't, you know, I don't know. I have, I think that certain narratives are comfortable or I don't want to say comfortable for people to read. I don't know if it's like the extreme sort of like the World War II thing where you want to read such extreme stories. And it's just interesting to me that he's written a variety of different things, but it is the novel about slavery and pain that was the breakout and I say this knowing that that was like such a it was a really good it's not like it wasn't a good book it was a really well-written novel but it's always interesting to me the stories that are celebrated and receive recognition sort of like Denzel Mm -hmm. Washington getting uh the best actor award for training day where he plays like a crooked cop (laughs) As opposed to all the other yeah. illustrious characters that he's played and, and done so well, but right, you know. right. Did you see the uh, some? I think this was last year. Maybe, I don't know. Whenever the Oscars So White was going on on SNL, they did this thing where it was like they would show these snippets of a movie with a very pivotal scene with an African American actor, and then there'd be like a, a white guy with a really minor role. And they kept saying, they kept showing the nominations that, like, the nomination for best actor. And, like, they kept, they kept bringing up all the white guys. And, like, none of the black actors <laughs> were getting nominated. I mean, it was, it was, mm-hmm. it was entertaining. If, you know, it, funny because right. it was so true. It was funny because it's so sad. horrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, along the same vein as Underground Airlines, I would put Homegoing. In there too, not because homegoing is imagined, but because homegoing traces the roots of slavery all the way back to the slave trade from Africa. And it takes two characters who are half sisters, and one ends up on uh, a ship to America through the slave trade, and one stays in Africa. And so Yah Jesse, who's the author, traces the descendants of both of those sisters. Um, in parallel chapters so that each chapter uh, corresponds to the next generation and alternates between the two lives. And that I, I actually found to be really compelling. And I, I, it's, I enjoyed that book a lot. And I know that um, we spoke to Catherine of um, Gilmore Guide who thought it was confusing. And it is a little bit confusing. You sort of have to reorient yourself with each chapter to what generation are we in and are we, which sister are we following? But to see the unspooling of lives dependent on where they were at this very, you know, pivotal moment in time, I I thought it was a fascinating book. You have not read that yet. Do you have any interest in reading it? That's probably why I haven't read it. Yeah. I'm like, I really want to read that. I'm dying to read it. So I haven't read it yet. Yeah, yeah, it's suffering from that. And then I think once something's been on my shelf for a long time, I don't know. It's just like, oh, you, you know, it's like when you keep seeing something. What is it? Um, familiarity yes. breeds contempt. You're just like, oh, yeah, that. Really want to read that. So let me find something else. Right. 
Well, I was going to say the, the last two that I wanted to talk about were much more personal about, uh, well, either about or not about race. So the first one is Green, which is a book that I read last year about a boy. He's white. He grows up in kind of inner city Boston, goes to a predominantly black middle school, and then ends up uh, testing into a magnet school where it's a more racially diverse. And it's just about his experience in both of those worlds and being a white kid and feeling like the outsider and feeling like he doesn't fit in. Um, so that kind of took race through a very personal prism. And I thought that was very an interesting book and I, I enjoyed reading that one. Um, and then the other one I was going to mention is a book I read many years ago called Jump at the Sun, which is a look at motherhood and working and, you know, trying to sort of grapple your way through parenting and keeping your identity. And the author and main characters are black, but they could have been anyone. So that was not a book in which race played a, a role much at all, but I liked that it was... Um, just a universal perspective and one that so many people can relate to regardless of who they are. So that's by Kim McLaren and green is by Sam Felson. I can't remember if he's got a hyphenated name or not. I think it's Sam Felson. So those two, I would just say, you know, they race was not, well, race to played a big role in green, although he was white and in jump at the sun race didn't play much of a role, but, that was kind of one of the things I really liked about it. So a novel like that, if you like stories where um, that are more about a universal experience, I would recommend The Mothers by Britt Bennett. And I really liked that book because it was, you know, it's about, it's set in a black community. Um, it's called The Mothers because I guess it's sort of like the, the story is narrated by the women of, you know, who take part, who are part of a congregation in a church. I think they're part of the choir. So it's sort of like that Greek influence of, you know, having a chorus narrate the story. And it's about these teenagers, you know, they are coming of age. Um, a couple is in love and it's about friendship and sort of how, sort of how one friend gets involved, gets in the middle of this relationship. And it's about this triangle that develops and how it develops over the years that they go to college and it just very briefly and how they're adults. And there's a pivotal thing that happens, you know, during the relationship, the young woman becomes pregnant and it's how they respond to that. And I really liked it because it was just, you know, a story about a community and the community you know, the church women are looking at what has happened to these young adults. Um, one of them has lost her father. So she's not actually one of them has lost her mother. So she's growing up motherless. And it's just sort of how she comes of age and grapples with experiences in her life. When she doesn't have a mother, she only has her father. So there is there's just no this story could have happened to anyone. You know, you're a teenager falling in love, you know, a love triangle, a pregnancy and, and how that turns out. And I just like that it was just this story about these people. And I like that African American culture, I guess, is represented. Black culture is represented in the story. 
through, you know, just the church going element and how the, how the black church functions, you know, how people step in to help each other, but also sort of about the relationships that are in, in the church and within the community. But this could be any community where faith is a, is a component or, or not a component, but you know, so it was about their experiences. It really was not about being black, but the characters are black. And I think that those are that's on my list. Important to have. Is that like, that's like your home going? Is it just on the shelf and you just constantly pass it It's on the shelf. Yes. You keep recommending it for me to me when I have a need to finish a a number of short books in a short period of time, because it's not that long. I think was in that one of them and I still haven't read it. Another book that, well, race does play a part of it. It, It's interesting though. We love you. Charlie Freeman by Katie, Caitlin Greenidge. And um, this one is about a family who the mother is a scientist and she gets appointed to work at this institution where they are, they're doing research on chimpanzees. So Charlie Freeman is actually a chimp that they are working with and they are teaching it how to communicate language. Um, the study is funded by this eccentric white woman who spent a good deal of her childhood in Africa and she decides to fund this study. And it's all about this family's experience. And I think that the place that they go to is either like upper Massachusetts or maybe Vermont or Maine or someplace that's really white and, and, you know, their experiences as a family raising this chimp or when like this chimp becomes a part of this black family and the communication and just all of the issues around it is told from the point of view of the teenage daughter. So it's a, you know, sort of how she's balancing going to school in a very white environment and just, the weird dynamics that are going on, you know, there's developments with her mother as she becomes um, more closely. I don't know. I, I guess as she delves more deeply into her research with these chimps. So like, how is that affecting the family, the family dynamics in the midst of all this? It was really interesting, a little bit satirical and snarky. I really like that book a lot. Okay. Well, that's a lot of books. You have a lot more on your list that we didn't well, get Well, I think that, you know, as I love to say, I mean, definitely if you're looking for pointers or you need a list of resources about books that you want to read, if you want to read more diversely or if you want to check out any of these books. But I just, you know, I don't think black history should be confined to one month or discovering different authors whose stories that you might like. So I think we're always talking about books all the time and and we'll work some more of these into the show. Absolutely. I think that should be a a regular (laughs) feature or not even just a a regular existence. There's so many good ones that are coming up. So you'll definitely be hearing me talk about them. I want to, there's this book called American Spy that's coming out by Lauren Wilkinson. And it's about this black woman who works in the CIA and she has to, she becomes lovers of like this, with this guy who runs a West African government that I think the CIA is trying to overthrow. And it just sounds really interesting. I had put on the spreadsheet to remember to say what the comparisons were. And it was that this is 
unflinching incendiary debut combines the espionage novels of John Le Carre with the racial complexity of Ralph Ellis, Ellison's Invisible Man. So that lives up to the publisher's weekly starred review. I'm going to be so excited. I can't wait to read this book. Oh, which means it'll no, price no, it on no. the shelf for a year. Because I'm, I'm just going to go. <laughs> I'm going to get it and just start it and... and it doesn't have that kind of ennui because I want to see how this works as a spy novel and sort of literary and yeah, I want to read that. I'll read it. <laughs> so. All right. Well, we are at the end of the show. So if you are near a computer, <laughs> Nicole and I are going to ask if you could put down the phone for a second or put whatever it is, however you're listening to the show or hit pause and change windows and leave us a review on iTunes. We would really, really appreciate it. That would be a huge help for us. It helps for getting new listeners. It helps when people are browsing around. There's a lot of book podcasts out there and we want them to learn about us and come and hear good comments about it. So if you don't mind, take 30 seconds, write up a review, let us know what you like about the show. Let us know how we can improve and uh, we will be eternally grateful. And, of course, tell everyone you know mm-hmm. about the show, too. <laughs> yeah, I was just telling Gail I went to review so, another show, and I was like, I can't do this for my phone. So you have to remember when you're sitting in front of a computer. So until next yeah. time. All right. Until next time, happy reading. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Readerly Report. You can find all of our shows on iTunes or at thereaderlyreport.com. Please join our Facebook group, Readerly Report Readers, where you can talk to other listeners about their reading life. You can also find Nicole at NicoleBonia.com and me, Gail, at EverydayIWriteTheBookBlog.com. Finally, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes and told your book-loving friends about us. Thanks. Thanks.